Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Audience Podcast. I'm Craig Hewitt, your host from Castos. In this episode, I'm happy to bring on Eric Newsom, uh, formerly of NPR, was really kind of the the power and the brains behind NPR getting into podcasting and creating a lot of the really great content that they have over the years. Eric has then since gone on to write several books, including his most recent called Make Noise, and is now driving a podcast consultancy called Magnificent Noise. Eric and I have a really great conversation in this episode all around uh, branding and positioning, different formats of podcast that you might consider depending on your audience and the messaging you're trying to deliver, how uh, writing books has differed from podcasting and uh, consulting with his clients, and many more things. It's a really wide-ranging and interesting conversation with Eric. I hope you enjoy. I think one thing that we talk about a lot is really good storytelling in podcasting, and it it has to do with either within a single episode, kind of creating that interesting story that people want to listen more to, but it also, in certain shows, spans like the whole season or maybe something. You know, and Serial probably is the example that most people think about of like, this (laughs) this is the podcast that people followed from beginning to end. What does storytelling mean to you, like with all of your experience in podcasting? What does storytelling mean to you now? Storytelling, to me, it's something that we do so much of that it's almost impossible to give it a clean box. I mean, you know, uh, when I stop my neighbor and we talk about something for 30 seconds, we're basically storytelling. When I meet someone and I'm talking to the cashier in the grocery store, we're storytelling. When I'm having an interview with someone where I'm the subject, like now, I'm storytelling, you're storytelling. There's data and facts and almost everything else is storytelling. And even data and facts often express themselves in the form of a story. And I think that, you know, it's been said by many people many times, but human beings are, are really hardwired to follow stories. If I gave you a series of numbers and asked you to remember them, you couldn't, or you might, don't know, maybe. If I put those numbers in the context of a story, like I, t- I embedded those numbers in a story with a beginning, a middle, and end, a narrative arc, there are characters in search of something and struggling to find it to some degree, you're going to remember much more of those data points, uh, just because that's just the, the reason that we have this kind of universal method of communicating events and happenings and, and, and the struggles that we all face is because it works for us and it works for our brains. So I think that rather than thinking of what storytelling is, it's almost the the answer is kind of everything to some degree is storytelling. I say on this show a lot that it's a little selfish because I interview folks that I want to talk to and talk about the things that I want to that I want to hear about and, and get better at. But I do that because I I think I'm kind of a representative of our audience. You know, I'm a podcaster that wants to get better. And this is a cool medium for for me to do that and, and, and share it with everyone else. And one of the things that I've really been focused a lot on lately is creating stories within interviews. <laughs> I heard someone say recently that a bad interview show is really easy to do. You get on the mic and you talk for 45 minutes, you ask the same eight questions, but a good interview is really difficult to get that story out, I think is what the person was getting at, is to kind of let someone tell their story in a new and interesting way. Would you agree with that, that storytelling in an interview format is is harder than like a monologue type show? 
It's interesting. I don't know if I agree. Uh, I think they uh, an interview is often a means to tell a story. It's and, and often is a really good way to take someone who really isn't good at telling stories and kind of help them through the process by asking questions that an audience would want to know or that someone who's interviewing them wants to know. So I don't know if it's harder. I think it it's harder in that it takes more effort and it takes kind of a communal lift to make that happen between the interviewer and the interviewee, but I don't think it's necessarily harder. It's much more involved and engaged. And I think if you are a storyteller who, you know, give me a mic and I'll spit out a story, I think an interview would be a more challenging situation because you are not fully in control. (laughs) You have to share control. It's a communal experience. And yet, on the other hand, if you are someone who has a lot of experience and wisdom to share and just aren't a very naturally good storyteller or a practice storyteller, to be in an interview situation where someone is asking you questions and you are responding is easier for you than if someone just gave you the microphone and said, go. From a like a, a practical standpoint, what are some things that you see good interviewers do to kind of open their guest up to be able to tell a good story. You mentioned like kind of enabling, I think, uh, you know, the guest to tell a good story. What are some like patterns that you've seen there? The most clear indication of an interviewer who really knows their stuff and knows how to use this medium well, it doesn't feel like an interview. It feels like someone who is just dying to ask another person some questions about something that happened to them or some knowledge that they have. And uh, you just hear this kind of, role of kind of back and forth. And it's not to confuse it with a conversation. I think that the big difference between an interview and a conversation is an interview is when one person wants to really focus a light on another person or people, and that the focus remains on the person being interviewed or people being interviewed and not the interviewer. And a conversation is much more of of multiple people who have perspectives and important information to share and kind of share that spotlight to some degree. And so for for someone who's interviewing, who talks to other people and asks them questions so that the audience, they're basically a proxy for the audience, the best ones, it just feels like natural. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like someone is pretending to be an interviewer. They uh, or they have in in their mind what the role of an interviewer is, which I think is is the most common hangup for people who are doing interviews. Is they have in their mind what a good interviewer should sound like. They may even have a role model of thinking, I want to sound like Trevor Noah, or I want to sound like Stephen Colbert, or Terry Gross, or Howard Stern, or whomever. And that's what I want my character, the interviewer, to be. And if they're not those people, then it's always going to come off as sounding like you're pretending. And the best interviewers are the ones that get out of that mode and just are curious. And you can't fake curiosity. You can't act curiosity. You are either a curious person or you aren't. And therefore, if you are asking someone questions and want to uh, discuss ideas with them and learn from them, and uh, you just have to make the assumption that if you're interested in it, your audience is also going to be interested in it. And so therefore you should feel confident that you're asking questions that the audience is going to want to hear the answers to just like you do. And so instead of creating this character of the interviewer, so so you can be a proxy for an audience and ask their questions, just bypass all that. And just, what do you want to know? You know, there's a common phrase among uh, trial attorneys 
or people who talk about trial attorneys, that you shouldn't in a trial ask questions that you know the answer to, or you don't know the answer to, excuse me. So a trial in a trial, you should an attorney should not ask a witness questions that they don't know the answer to because the answer could be surprising, it could benefit the other side, so on and so forth. So you always make sure that you know what the answer to that question should be or is. And an interviewer in a media setting, it should be the exact opposite. If you already know the answer to the question, why are you asking the question? And you might want to get, if you understand what happened to them, you may want to get their perspective on the way that you understand it. Like, this is what I've heard. This is what I've read. Tell me what's right and what's wrong with that. Those type of things. But um, I do think it's uh, really hard to be an interviewer unless you're really being authentic to yourself. I find it difficult to balance between uh, like being a good interviewer and asking good questions with having an interesting conversation. Uh, Because on one hand, I think asking good questions can be really segmented. You can ask a question, I can ask a question, you give a response, that's really interesting, we kind of talk about it for a while. I then ask another question, but it might not be like you would have a conversation like you're talking about, you know, with with your neighbor or the person down the street. Is there kind of a right or a wrong way to do that? Or, or, Or can it be a little bit of both, you think? I think it really needs to be, who are you serving in this conversation? Are you serving the two of you that are sitting in that room or in the virtual room like we are now? If it's just to basically for fun and a conversation you have because it's fun to talk to this person, then have the conversation you want to have. I mean, I don't think that's a very compelling uh, listening situation for others. There is a a lot of people, especially, you don't see that as much in in media today, but it used to be kind of like the regal interview of like, like someone is like a notoriously deep thinker as an interviewer and um, that we as an audience should feel blessed to be in the presence of such greatness of this person interviewing and this other person answering questions. And I just don't think anybody cares to hear that. You know, I think they'd much rather hear and interesting, you know, interviews can be meant to be entertaining just because the back and forth is funny and they can be informative, they can be moving, they can be intellectually stimulating. The, the thing, every one of those things needs to keep in mind is who is it for? If it's a really funny, entertaining conversation for the two people in it, then why are you offering it as a... um why are you offering it as a as a podcast? Wouldn't it make more sense to to offer it somewhere else? So it really gets kind of weird, and um, you know, sometimes people do things that which they do it for the cathartic nature of joy of doing it for themselves, and there's nothing wrong with that. But just own that and realize that your podcast isn't going to reach very many people. Then I wanted to go down this road of of kind of the intersection of storytelling and interviewing because I think if this podcast had like a subtitle, it would be "Don't make." bad podcasts or don't don't make shitty podcasts. And I think from a content perspective, that's something we really try to understand better. And I think here at the beginning of 2020, we see a lot of people just over the typical interview show and, and looking for a better way to do this. And that's kind of why I wanted to go down this rabbit hole of what a good interview is and how we can all do better. But, but I think the question generally of format should be asked as well is like, is an interview format still, I don't want to say viable, but is it still kind of the best option for a lot of people? And I would love to hear your perspective on kind of where and when you still see interview shows 
really shining and, and where you think people should try to consider other options? I always start backwards. I start with what kind of experience am I trying to create and who am I trying to create it for? And I use then my gut to decide what's the best method or format to use. And so I think people often, when they're thinking about podcasting, they they often do it backwards, uh, at least from my mind. Like, yeah, I want to do an interview show where I talk to people about filmmaking. And they don't ever pause to think, like, what am I actually, why am I choosing to do an interview? Is it just because I listen to a bunch of podcasts and they all use the interview format? Or um, is it because I think that makes me look smart? Or are, I don't know how, I don't have the skills to do another form of format. But there's lots of different formats for, for podcasts. And I often really want encourage people to back up and say, okay, let's talk about what you're trying to achieve here. Like who's the audience you're trying to reach? What's kind of the emotional register or what emotional note you're trying to hit? And how do we then kind of play on that to make it, you know, a a real resonant uh, experience for you and your audience. And then we figure out, okay, what's the best format for that? So you may still land on an interview format talking about people about film, but I would think that uh, if you're doing it right, you're coming up with a much more nuanced view of who you're speaking to, the type of conversation you want to have. You know, there are thousands of podcasts of people talking to another person about film. What makes yours uh, in a field of one? And I think that's a much more important conversation. It has little to do with the format and much more to do with the specifics of who you are as the interviewer. Uh, again, what you're trying to achieve, who you're speaking to. If you are trying to speak to people about film and you're trying to talk to people who are in you know, the very early parts of their career trying to break into the film industry, you're going to have a very different conversation than you would someone who's a fan of film or more specifically a fan of a certain genre of film or a certain time period in which films were made. Like if you are a fan of Kung Fu movies, that's a very different conversation than someone who's a fan of rom-coms. So all these things, I think, go into making this kind of definition of self and the type of conversations you want to have. Like, for example, if you're having that conversation where you're having conversations with more experienced filmmakers and the audience intention is to reach young people who are entering the industry, interview is a perfect format because you have someone, you're trying to ask someone of experience you know, questions about what they've learned that's then transferable to others. If you really are targeting more mature people in their career in, in filmmaking, it might be more like a conversation makes more sense because if you really want to connect a, a community together. And so you could go in a thousand different directions here, but it's often people think backwards and the key really to me is in deciding whether or not an interview is the right format is really some of those earlier questions. I think for a lot of folks, uh, myself included, that don't have a media background and are coming into podcasting from a business perspective or from, you know, talking about their passion project or their sports team or, or whatever it is, that some of these creative decisions and 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 kind of guiding the the podcast from a, a creative perspective is really intimidating. I would not consider myself like a right brain person. And I think when we look at a lot of the best podcasts out there from an artistic perspective, uh, I think that there are people that that do that really well. When you were like at NPR, did you run into this a lot with 
uh, you know, kind of people that are analytical left brain type folks, but that needed to get into this more creative mindset and, and kind of how did y'all navigate that? In my book, I've just published Make Noise, I, I talk about this a lot of uh, some of these definitional exercises that I preach so handily to people to do are equally easy and frustrating to people who are left or right brain that are very creative or very process oriented. It takes the people who just kind of want to just go and create and figure out what it is afterwards and forces them to think a little bit more intentionally. And for people who are more process oriented, who need to kind of figure it out and then go out and create, it gives them a roadmap to kind of help guide them. And so I, I use it equally with both types of people and think that uh, if you're not being kind of frustrated by the need for granularity and specificity, you aren't working hard enough, regardless of how your brain works. And presumably that gets easier over time, or do you think that level of frustration, as you put it, is kind of always there if if you're doing it right? I don't know. I think it's it, it, you just kind of learn to accept that that's part of the process. You know, my book came out in January, and in and, and the couple weeks following it, I was traveling around quite a bit and still trying to do my day job at the same time. So I was out talking with people about this book uh, in the evenings, and the next day I'd be talking to clients about, and it was surprising to me that I would go to major media companies and have conversations about podcasting. And then I would meet some friend of a friend at a coffee shop who they'd asked me to talk to them about their interest in podcasting. And I ended up realizing I was having the same conversations with both groups. And this kind of speaks to your other question about being intimidated by some of these things. I, I, I don't see that. And I don't see the justification for it because I see people who are incredibly experienced and incredibly uh, creative people who will get just as frustrated by these things. And the conversations are incredibly similar and um, the frustrations are the same. People just can't figure out you know, how to define themselves, how to find some white space in a very crowded field, how to um, go about the creative process when there is an abundance of choice and potential options. I mean, the great thing about podcasting is it's the Wild West and there are no rules. And the hardest thing about podcasting is it's the Wild West and there are no rules. So uh, many people like myself believe that creativity actually thrives with boundaries and if you don't give any boundaries, then people will just flounder around and not be able to figure out what they should be doing. You mentioned the book uh, Make Noise came out a few months ago as we're recording this. I would love to hear more about the process and how you saw the process of, of writing a book uh, relative to creating podcast content. So I think a lot of people who do podcasts also are authors, one form or another, bloggers or actual kind of written book publishers. This is actually my fourth book, so it's it's not a new process to me. It's the first time I've written a book that is anywhere remotely close to what I do. So it was maybe more applicable then, right? Like yeah. more interesting to compare, like you're talking about. Yeah. Well, at first, I'm uh, my wife who who hates when I write a book because that means I'm terribly busy and preoccupied most <laughs> of the time. When I was telling her I was going to do this, and she was starting to brace herself for the inevitable you know, MIA husband, I said, oh, this book will be so easy because I already know it. I just have to write it down. I don't have to learn it. Like I, with other books I'm writing where I'm doing so much research and reporting, I'm like, I know what to do. And that ended up just being just nonsense. And because uh, my other fear with this book was, and the reason I took several years to agree to do it was 
I figured I could write a chapter and a half, and then that would be about all I had to say. And ended up being that neither really was accurate. I found that I had no no problem expressing my thoughts and ideas or finding things to write about and left enough stuff on the table I could write a whole second book just based off the stuff I didn't cover in this first book. But it's really interesting to sit down and try to put to paper, for lack of a better term, or put into words, a process that you live every day and do so much just by instinct and muscle movement that sometimes I don't even think about why I do some of these things. And so therefore I end up kind of sitting and saying, okay, why do I do it this way? And 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 the real challenge is how do I express this to someone who's not in my presence and can't ask me a question, right? So I have to be thorough enough and clear enough in these ideas that if it doesn't make sense to them, I can still kind of back up and find an, another way to uh, make it work. So what I'm what I'm hearing a bit is you find that the kind of thoroughness of what you're expressing in writing is maybe takes more more time and thought than than what you're doing in podcasting, or do you think you're just more aware of how important that is when you're writing something as kind of definitive as a book? Both, I think it requires a lot of thought and. You know, for example, if I have historically said, oh, don't do that, that's a bad idea. Um, you know, when was the last time I actually checked that? Like, why do I think it's a bad idea? And if I'm to explain this to someone who has not worked with me for years, how do I explain it to them in the way that they would understand? Not just don't do this, but here's why you don't want to do this. And so I think there's a, there's quite a bit of that, of wanting to um, kind of understand the process of contextualizing things. Um, and kind of struggling with that, I think, quite a bit. is You spend a lot of your time thinking about, why do I feel the way I do about this? And can, again, can I explain that to someone in a way that when they can't ask me questions or ask for more examples, that they'll get it and understand? And I would imagine then, in kind of your your regular job as kind of like with your agency, that makes the your conversations there more concrete and maybe kind of well thought through since you've just kind of run through those for your book, right? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I was working on a pro- I'm working on a project right now uh, with Ted, uh, of, you know, Ted Talks, and uh, they they um, had a host and they wanted to do the series. I helped them figure out what the series is and then actually produced it. And the first time the host and I talked, I started explaining him to a couple things, and he stopped me. He's like, "You know, Eric, I read your book." <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> great. great, great. My God, we could just skip past all that stuff. So it is funny how how um, it has come full circle that there are things that I've talked about uh, in the book that, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, someone asked me a question the other day who had read my book, and I said, well, I can give you the answer I gave you in the book, or I can give you the updated answer of how I think about this now, a year since I turned that book in, and they're like, "Oh, I want the current version." So I explain it that way. Uh, but it it is it does. I think anyone who's who thinks for a living is constantly trying to, you know, struggle to figure out how to express things well and in a complete way, and to come up with new exciting ways for them and for people to kind of connect to ideas. And a book just accelerates that process. But it's not really that different than if I have you know sixteen conversations with people about the same thing. Um, that's going to tighten my th- my thinking up too. So you wrote an article in the Neiman uh, blog about a year ago, year and a half ago, about DIY podcast networks. Uh, kind of this idea that 
we're all better together than any of us or many of us could be kind of separately. And the DIY part is not necessarily an NPR or a Gimlet, but you and three other you know, SEC college football podcasts get together and and you guys can cross promote and things like that. A year and a half later, now talking about, you know, what's the answer today? How do you feel about this kind of relative to to the post that you wrote? I feel flattered and somewhat satisfied when I, in the rare times that I make a prediction that that prediction actually ends up coming true. So that's an example, I think, where a lot of people have picked up on that idea, um, not taking credit for it, but just saying I saw that starting to happen and thought it was a really important idea. So uh, a lot of people have picked up on it, and I think it's proven true. And it's and the people who try it, it works. And then it's not a big shocker that it works because it's been proven time and time and again that if you share some audience and some audience appeal with another podcast and you have each other on as guests or you promote each other, it can end up being quite satisfying um, to uh, introduce you to each other's audience and um, effective and can actually increase. There's a cause and effect of it increases downloads. And so therefore I think it's um, you know not surprising that uh, uh, that works um, and people who execute it well uh, with the emphasis on that are the ones who uh, it really uh, does very well with. And for those who don't execute it well, what do you think are some of the the gotchas that they kind of fall up fall short with? It isn't really a a match of appeal as much as people think. You know, uh, if you're talking about a certain type of genre of film on your podcast, and you want to have somebody else talk about who has a film podcast, and you can promote each other, um, there are times when there might be a lot of similarities and appeal. It doesn't mean directly appeal, like if you make a podcast about banana recipes and you have to do it with somebody else who also makes a podcast about banana recipes. I have never looked that one up before, but I'm sure they exist. My seven-year-old uh, would love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, usually with these, I Google them before I, I say, um, uh, make these examples. I, you know, Barbie doll collecting and um, uh, you know, humble figurines and all these other things, but I didn't do this one. But, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be someone who does literally the same thing as you, but it could be someone who is like, there's, if someone's interested in subject A, they would be interested in subject B. Or like, I, I often tell people, if you're blogging about your town and your neighborhood, maybe there's someone else who blogs about your town and neighborhood that doesn't feel quite so overlappy, but there, especially if you have some distinctions in how you approach things. There's all sorts of smart ways to do it. But if it's just like, if you're making a podcast about um, beekeeping and someone else is making a podcast about collecting uh, snow globes, you have no chance that they're, you're going to cross-pollinate those audiences. So why bother? So that, that's kind of a, like a, an extreme to prove the point, but uh, it really makes sure that you uh, really have somebody who um, uh, does match you. Um, and that's usually the, the, when it doesn't work, that's usually why. And then do it with frequency too. I don't think people realize that there is a lot of, you know, if you look at how messages are received in audio, um, I won't really get too deeply into this, but people have researched this repeatedly. And often people have to hear something three times in order to remember it when they're doing it in a passive sense, when they're, you know, driving or folding laundry or whatever. And so that's why I repeat it. That's why you often hear messages repeated and advertising repeated and promos repeated is so people will actually remember it, uh, the average person. And uh, doing that cross promotion doesn't change. 
I would love to get your t- changing tact totally. Uh, I would love to get your perspective on kind of where you see the state of advertising here in the you know end of the first quarter of 2020. What do you see with advertising, and, and kind of where do you think it's going? No, I, I have no idea now. I, I have no <laughs> uh, well, idea. Well, right, now. yeah, coronavirus may very well change everything, right? But yeah, well, no, it's not very well may. It's going to change everything, and. I think that if you look at the financial crisis of 2008 as an example, the first advertising that fell was for more legacy media, newspapers, local television, local radio, and that built back a little bit. And I think you're going to, and instead, digital platforms, which did see a decrease in business, were not nearly as strongly affected as kind of the old analog legacy media and print media. I think in magazines, um, and you know, magazines who arguably never recovered. I think you're going to see that happen again now. That you'll see, podcasting is in a, a relatively stable place, and will more than likely, if an advertiser has to cut fifty bucks out of their hundred dollars in spend, which is what's going to happen, they will most likely look at their least performing advertising and get rid of that first, and that's going to be that all those things I mentioned. And podcasting should remain fairly near the top of that list for effectiveness. The reason that podcasting advertising has done so well uh, is because it is very effective and it does return a good return on investment. And so you'll still have people who will want to do that because they're going to need to generate business. And so I think that that's what you're going to see a lot of. In terms of how the content is delivered, you know, we see the things like dynamic ad insertion and uh, you know, host read ads should be much more performant than uh, you know a sponsor reading or you know a, a voiceover person reading it. Do you see any changes there? You know, here in you know 2020 and and kind of beyond that you, I think maybe I should I should ask that the leading people are doing that the rest of us might be able to emulate. To just be prepared to be everywhere. I think that if you are one of the podcasts that is available on Apple Podcasts and uh, not on Spotify, you're cutting yourself off. And there are there are hundreds of thousands that are not listing themselves in Spotify. And I'm not sure why, outside of just assuming that maybe it's there, it's not, uh, if you haven't manually gone and added it. So I think, or your hosting service doesn't do that for you. If you haven't clicked a box to say, send me to Spotify, it's not happening. And, and Spotify is increasingly uh, becoming a bigger and bigger player and, ta- and taking up more and more. So I think that, you know, that's one thing is just be prepared to watch where audiences flow through smart speakers, through dashboards, through um, different modes of play. You know, there was a time right before serial kind of broke and podcasting kind of really mainstreamed in a way that it hadn't before, where a lot of people who were listening to podcasts were doing it on web pages because a play button on a web page was really easy for people to figure out. And the podcasting apps at the time were really uneasy to figure out. So, you know, things change and they flow and they're fluid. And I think we are just in the very beginning of the beginning of the podcasting journey and the podcasting story. And I think that you have to realize that the only thing that anyone smart will ever predict is that things will change. And, you know, you have a lot of people who, like, for example, there are people who say, oh, I am a podcaster because I distribute my podcast versus an RSS feed that's available in these six places. And if you are not, or you uh, are available on another platform like radio or 
streaming services or whatever, you're not a true podcaster. And I think those people are, are going to be the first to suffer as change happens. I would imagine that as the way that people listen to podcasts changes, the way we create content and the types of content and the formats and the durations and things like that might change too. Uh, is that something that you're seeing folks getting ready for? Yeah, I think it's you do see quite a bit of um, a move towards making things shorter. Um, and if you have six hours of material, maybe you do it in 12 half-hour episodes rather than six-hour-long episodes, or perhaps even uh, doing it in a number of 28-minute episodes or 15-minute episodes. I think you're, you're seeing a lot of people experimenting with shorter form and are really liking what's happening. And I think you're seeing a number of podcasts, including things that we work on, that are designed to be shorter experiences, designing to be a 20-minute experience, for example. We have several that we're doing that. Um, and it's it has much more to do with fitting inside of what people are using podcasts uh, as a, an accompaniment to do. For example, uh, uh, if someone's walking the dog or has a commute to work, there's more likely they're going to be able to absorb a 20-minute episode uh, in that walk than listen to um, one-hour podcast episode over three different walks. Kind of to, to wrap up here, Eric, we'd love to hear a bit about kind of what y'all do at Magnificent Noise and, and kind of who uh, who you try to, to serve. Well, we're not a public-facing company, so we don't distribute our own material. We make material for other companies and with talent that other companies sell and distribute so you know, we work with the New York Times, with ESPN, with uh, TED conferences, the TED Talks, um, and a number of other companies, and we create content for them uh, that they distribute. And then also about a third of our time roughly is spent consulting with people so that talent organizations come and say they want to figure out how to make great things. We try to help them figure that out. For folks who want to catch up with you and, and kind of learn more about what you're up to, where's the best place? Magnificentnoise.com. Eric, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 